Well, welcome to the Renewing the Mind podcast. Here with the staff of Christ Community Church, we are down one pastor today. Uh, pastor Ryan's not going to be joining us, but uh, our goal for this podcast is to to be obedient to the call of Romans chapter twelve, where it says, "Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God." And so. We've been going through the book of First Timothy, and we're going to continue on. We got through uh, chapter 2, verse 4, I think, last time. And uh, we're going to jump into to verse 5, and so I'm going to kick it over to Pastor Jeff. All right, thanks. I'm going to kick it over to Patrick. Patrick, do you want to read uh, verses? I would love to. Uh, or, I'm sorry, 5 through yeah. 7. Okay, Dude, 5 through 7. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed, a herald, an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. And a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Yeah, man, wow. A lot of stuff kind of packed down in there. Yeah, we're have what we do, <laughs> yeah, we'll just kind of take it, I think, maybe phrase by phrase yeah. here. Um, obviously, as Christians, we're monotheists. Um, though I don't think our... Jewish brothers believe that, and I don't think uh, Islamic uh, friends no. would would say that. But uh, but we are we believe in one God. So Daniel, in what sense do we believe in one God? How, how would you answer an Orthodox Jew or uh, a Muslim who thinks that we believe in three gods? Yeah, um, that is a tough one because anytime you start getting into a discussion of the Trinity and try to give any kind of example, you usually drift into a heresy. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, we believe that God has been eternally existent, and that he is self-existent, and that he has existed as three who's and one what during that time. Yeah. Uh, we believe the, the Father is entirely God, that the Son is entirely God, that the Holy Spirit is entirely God, and yet the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not Jesus, is the Son, the Son is not the Father, nor the Holy Spirit. Um, and so in that that unity, they are the Godhead, but they are also they're not yes. they're not three. You know, any anytime you get into the into it's not the shell of the egg and the yolk of the egg and the white sure. of the egg. Yeah. It's they they are all God and they are yeah. uh, so yeah, it's truly and it's and for me, I'm okay embracing that mystery. Sure. Because uh, if God, if I could truly comprehend the nature of God, then my mind could contain Him, and I likely have a, okay. a smaller sure. picture of God. Okay. So. Uh, so what are some other? Would there be another attribute or something, an, an attribute of God that Ju- Judeo-Christian, that is a part of the Judeo-Christian worldview, that you don't have an analogy for? I mean, that frankly is is beyond analogy because every analogy has to be born of the creation realm yeah it has to be born of creation so so some you know uh the the eternal existence of god he is the uncaused cause right that's not something that we that we see as finite beings as finite beings yeah we are uh derivative and he is not Right. (laughs) right so that's another thing that we can't wrap our mind around uh, eternality. Uh, and the fact that he's always existed. Yes. Like in, in one sense, we have eternal life because we live forever with Christ. Yes. But we only have eternal life from this point forward. <laughs> forward. Yeah. Uh, forward. From our creation forward. But God, 
has, God describes himself as having no beginning. He has no origin. God is infinite, and so it's very difficult for us uh, as people mm. to wrap our heads around how, because we're finite beings, how, how uh, there can be an infinite being, an eternal being in the sense from, from ages past yeah. to no time. Right. It's always out of grasp, and as much as we study, it seems like it's coming more into grasp, only for it to slip out of our fingers and continue. Yeah, right. Some mystery, some unknown. So but yeah. Any, yeah, but any of the attributes of God, any of the uncommunicable attributes of God, are. Um, what do you mean by uncommunicable? So the, we don't, we don't, we don't, yeah, we don't possess yeah. them as image bearers of God. Like these are not attributes that He uh, shares with us. Yeah. Right. So, so things like omniscience, we really cannot grasp that, mm -hmm. right. you know. Uh, but we are knowing beings, and and so we have so we have a, a picture of them. Right. We're existent beings, so we have an idea of existence, but right. not eternal existence. <laughs> so there's always a measure to which he's outside our. our we know what it's like to have power, right? But we don't know what it's like to to be yeah. omnipotent. And we believe, but we also believe in mystical unions. Yeah. We do believe in kind of a mysterious yeah, more than mystical unions. Because we truly believe that when a man and a woman enter into the covenant of marriage, they become one. They become one, right? In a way that is different, and the church gathered becomes something distinct, right? From you know, so we so we have little pictures of of that uh, that oneness in diversity, right? Um, I think that's as far as any analogy could ever go. I think as far as any analogy could ever go before it's pressed for heresy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Is to say. We do have these examples of how something can be one and also, um, we would say multifaceted, but the moment you use the word multifaceted, you're already you've already pressed it too far. Because yeah. God isn't multifaceted, he isn't tripartite, or he doesn't have multiple parts. There are three distinct or discrete persons within the one Godhead. Good. I like your I like your inverted, you did the, you have kind of an inverted analogy uh, with, oh, yeah. with the... The human. That's my favorite. Because I, I really do, the more I study um, human constitution, particularly as it's taught in the New Testament and as it was taught in ancient Greece, and I think that there there is an aspect of the way Paul teaches it in the New Testament, and I think Jesus as well, that is accommodating something the Greeks got right. But I would also argue that the Greeks borrowed their initial concept from the Jews, and I could show how it got mm. traced into that's really interesting. yeah oh yeah for sure and this but what is, did, yeah what is that expect? so the ideas of being body soul and spirit and so in the same way that god is you said one what three who's we are three what's and one who um so we're exactly the inverse we're body yeah. soul yeah. and spirit and what i mean by that is that a person is essentially a the, the genesis word is the word nefesh and that, is, that means a living being or a living soul. But that word is also used of animals. Uh, when God creates animality, it also uses the Hebrew word nefesh uh, to describe an animal. And so in one way, we are like the, the animals, the animal kingdom, as we would call it. Uh, we are living souls that reside in a body. Um, but we have something else. And the New Testament calls that a spirit. And the word spirit and soul are sometimes used interchangeably in the New Testament, but they don't mean the same thing. They really don't. And so I think that a person is a soul, a living being, who has a spiritual faculty. Uh, a spiritual faculty is the, the, 
the capacity to commune with God uh, as in, in relationship. And uh, I So think when someone says, I heard the Spirit speak to me, it's with that spiritual capacity that's yes. referred to, not necessarily the soul. If you were to break it down, you would say, their spiritual faculty is able to discern what God yes. is saying. Uh, that's that's exactly what I would say, and and so, so in this sense, the image of God would not be. So, what does it mean for us? If there's one God, who's eternally existent in three discrete persons, and then you and I are three, we are three what's and one who we are one person, three different parts. <laughs> then uh, we are kind of an inverse analogy, yeah. if you will. But even that breaks down at some point. Any analogy, we're the only analogy. I would argue in all creation for God, which is what it means to be an imager. Yeah. But it has to be an inverse analogy because we are still part of the creative realm. And, uh, and so, so like a mirror image, when I'm looking into a mirror image, it's actually the opposite of what I'm looking at. Or kind of so, a negative image. If you're looking at a image. photograph, yeah. it's like the Shroud of Turin. You see it, you kind of don't see anything when, when you look at it, but then you look at the negative image and then you see, see more detail. Yeah. It's kind of how you see the detail. But this isn't this isn't just a new a New Testament construction. There is indication uh, that there's indication of the Trinity. There's no explicit term Trinity in the Bible anywhere, but right, there is right. there is indication of the Trinity from the beginning for sure. Um, I think and, there's no doubt about that. And so if if a if a Jewish scholar were to press me on that, I would say yeah, I, I, I think that this is a, not yeah. just a, a New Testament right. revelation. Old Testament Revelation as well. Like in what sense? Because we had we we had to categorize this idea of scripture into Trinity. That's why we created the world, is because we had to figure out we had to systematize what we've read. Sure. So in the Old Testament we have things like God. We also have the angel of the Lord, I'm assuming is one sense where we'd have to define this this angel of the Lord receives worship. So what is this in relationship to God, right? Is that how you'd have to go? Yeah, but even in, in Genesis two where he says, Let us make man in our sure. image and does not speak. He doesn't speak in the royal we, in many other like in many other places in in scripture. It's definitely not the royal we. Uh, I do think it involves the Trinity, uh, the Trinitarian God, in the sense that only God creates. Um, but I also think it involves the heavenly council there, because in the same way that angelic beings or other supernatural beings. Uh, have been created, we'll, we'll get to this in a second, but in a little bit more detail, as a host of beings, um, <clears throat> we have been created as spiritual beings as well. So we are spiritual. We just happen to live in a body, and we were created for uh, this world. We, we are earthbound uh, beings uh, until we die, and then we become disembodied, and we go into heaven or we go into hell. Uh, so I think in that case, you know, there is some question as to whether God is speaking to the entire heavenly council there, but the Trinity is definitely present. And I think there are other places where there is clearly a Trinitarian, um, clearly a Trinitarian idea going on in the New Te in the Old Testament yeah. as well. Yeah. So I disagree with scholars who say that it's not in the Old Testament. I, I would have to say, you know, we can get into that further at a later time. But uh, so what does it mean now? So I do want to bring this up, actually. Uh, the word Elohim for gods is actually used in the Old Testament. I got this from Michael Heiser because I've been listening to a lot of his lectures lately. The word Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for gods, is used in many cases in the Old Testament where it is not talking about the one true God. So here we're talking about uh, like Psalm chapter 82, where God is speaking to the divine council, 
<clears throat> and apparently, according to Deuteronomy 32, he has set that divine council over the nations and has allotted each one of those principalities, powers, or rulers in heavenly realms mm -hmm. to, to oversee a nation. But then they rebel against Yahweh, the one true God, and God says, I, I said you are gods. Ye are gods, right? Yeah. But you're going to die like men, right? So I'm going to judge you as if the way that I have judged mankind. And so, so what do we do with that? In, in what sense are these Elohim in the Old Testament? In what sense are they they got their gods? In what sense are they gods? And in what sense are they not? I'd have to begin with their and what's different. So their spirit. They're spirit, some, they're, they're spirit beings, which is probably the main difference. That's the it's the main thing in which they have like God and yes. like us. Okay. They're spiritual beings. Because Hebrews chapter one says God is spirit. Or I'm sorry, uh, John. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus says that in John chapter four yes. to the Samaritan woman. Yeah. Um, God is spirit, and they that worship God must worship in spirit yeah, and true. in truth. Um, and also we know that angelic beings are ministering spirits sent to God's God. people, right? Yeah. And God makes it clear uh, that there is none like him. Right. That he is like the Elohim. Right. And that these, you know, in the same way that we are, please don't hear this in, <laughs> in uh, prosperity gospel terms because prosperity gospel preachers will take this and say, oh, yeah, well, we're little gods. Oh, right? that's right. Um, but we are imagers of him. Right. You know, we are sons of God. In that sense, uh, you know, uh, so it's a to, to me, it's a there's a semantic difference between Elohim and Elohim's right. uh, that he's not he's not attributing uh, the nature of deity to these things. He is, but he they are in his likeness in a way, right? You know. Um, so in the same way that so we look at Daniel, right? And remember the angel that comes to deliver. Daniel, the message. Is it Michael or is it Michael? It's Michael, isn't it? Okay, so Michael comes to deliver the message. And remember what he says there that he had to fight the Prince of Persia. It was dispatched yeah, 10 days ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I actually was sent quite, quite some time ago, but it took me a while to get to you because I had to fight through. What is he talking about there? Well, this is what Paul is referring to in Ephesians 6, where he says, uh, our, our warfare is not against. Flesh and blood. It against is it, it is against the rulers, the authorities, the powers, and, and heavenly realms. So obviously there are these, and he calls them the prince of Persia. That's very interesting. So that's a ruling term, yeah. right? So obviously there are these supernatural beings, be they angelic beings or whatever. Um, but the Old Testament always refers to them as hosts, not a race. So this is where I think some people get it wrong in thinking that they have been begat. Right? It never uses the word begat for these people. A host is created and probably created all at once. And probably, um, so I, mean, I would mean, all at once is this is the set. There's no more, yeah, no less. Yeah, this and that's the difference between a human being is at birth, uh, when we are born into the world, we are born into the world as a procreating race. And we have a mandate that they don't have. Yeah, and it's a dominion fulfill. vocation. Yeah. And how do you fulfill the dominion vocation? Of extending the project of Eden By into the rest of the arid world, yeah. fruitful, you have to be fruitful. You have to multiply. Two people can't do it. They are never given that vocation. They they aren't given that right. that kind of vocation because they're not a race. They don't procreate. So this is where I would say there are really some differences here 
uh, between beings who are spiritual, uh, and that would include what we would call the angelic realm, although that's probably not a precise term, but it would include us as spiritual beings, beings who are souls with a spiritual faculty, the ability okay. to commune with God. <clears throat> I would say they're intelligent, they're rational. I would also say um, they're fallen in the same way that we are. So there are many ways in which we have a lot of similarities, um, uh, but there are, are some dissimilarities. But God is the only spiritual being who is eternal, timeless, self-existent. To be worshipped. And, and worthy of worship. Yeah. And this is God's big problem in the Old Testament. And so Paul's a Jew. He knows all this. Right. Right? And so in what sense is God the only God? He's the only God in that. He, he alone has the attributes of being the infinite personal creator of the universe. And God alone is worthy of our worship. And that is how we make a distinction between any other spiritual being and God who is spirit. Um, your thoughts on that? Any, any concluding thoughts on that? Super fun rabbit trail. I think you know. <laughs> no, I think, I think it's good to lean into it because there's, the, there's kind of the, the glossing over of that, uh, the use of the same name. Uh, and it's explained away you know, without really leaning into the sure. the weirdness of, okay, wait, what does that mean? Right. Um, but, it's, it lands on our ears as but, well. Yeah, but but the, the rest of the testimony of Scripture makes it absolutely plain that God is a distinct and unique, and there is none like Him. There's none like Him. You know, and that... Uh, this is Isaiah's big deal, right? Yeah, So we and so we only have one word for God. Sure. And, um, and isn't that Hebrews 1, the instance when it's talking about the angelic beings, their whole point is to point to Christ, They're to devote and point to worship to the one God. Yeah. So those spirit beings have one purpose, to worship. And, and in Psalm 82, this is exactly what they did not do. What they did is they deceived the nations, they drew the nations out into yes. idolatry instead of pointing them to worship the one true God, the judge at the center of the council, as it were. I think that's a fascinating idea, but, but this is why God's judgment remains on them, is because they instead of... Away, yeah leading the nations to the knowledge of God. They led the nations away from the knowledge of God, and they accelerated sin by teaching the nations how to sin worse, how to invent ways <laughs> how to, to get do better evil. at it. And yeah. Paul refers That's to this. Paul in Romans chapter 1, he says, I mean, what is the end result of idolatry? After that spiraling thing, he says, they invent new ways of doing evil. Yeah. This is what the fallen, unredeemed person does. So there, so there, so there wow. is a sense in which... Idol worship is worshiping other gods. Yes, it is. It truly, when Paul says that, uh, you know, meat meat offered to an idol nothing. Is, is nothing, but it's been offered to a demon. Exactly, it's been offered to a spiritual entity that is real and That's right. accepting of that. Of the, and they're not worthy worship. of it. They yeah. don't have the attributes of the one true God. They're a host of beings. They're not a race of beings, and it's a, that is idolatry is to worship anything that is not God, particularly anything like that, that uh, shows up in idol worship. Okay, great. Well, let's move along here, uh, and let's deal with some other stuff that is in, that are in the passage. So there is only one mediator between God and men. So this is a question I have for you, gentlemen. Why don't we, why don't we practice an ongoing priesthood? We have in, this, in the sense of the Jewish priesthood? 
Yes. Like having a high priest. Yes, yes. So, so in the sense help. that the Jews had yeah. had uh, a, a clear priesthood in which the priest represented the nation right. to God. Right. Why don't we have that? Because it's been done away with in Christ. Okay, how has it been done away with? Because he was the final mediator. I, if I Old Testament A&E, and so correct me if I'm wrong, there was a continual high priest that served in this role as best he could, but he was an image of what was to come. And he had to offer sacrifices for himself first. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And now right. Christ steps in and says, I am the once and for all. Everything that came before was pointing towards me, but now I have I can fulfill this perfectly. And now he sits as as the intercessor. Tele, you know, like as the, the telos of the sacrifice. He is the fulfillment. Right. He is the eternal on like ever sacrificed lamb, as you see in in so, uh, Revelation. A lamb of Hebrews, this is a big deal in on, Hebrews, on the man. throne. Um, so that that function of the priest is ongoingly finished. So, so in, in one in sense, Jesus, it, we do still practice it, but we don't practice it within the church by electing a high priest. We already have because one. our mediator is not on earth; our mediator is in heaven. heaven. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is what. If you want to read more on this, I encourage you all. To study this, all you have to do is read the first three chapters of Hebrews. <laughs> that guy, whoever wrote that book, um, that committee that wrote that book in the first century, this is what they land pretty hard on. Jesus Christ is both the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. In other words, we continue spiritually, in a sense, to sacrifice offering our bodies to God. We offer spiritual sacrifices in terms of our offerings. The New Testament talks about that. But, we, but no one is a sin offering. There's only one, and it's a fully sufficient sin offering. It is Jesus Christ on the cross crucified. And then in addition to that, Jesus is also the high priest. He is the high priest to, to end. Uh, and when we say end, what we mean is to fulfill or bring that ancestral office to its intended completion. So if Jesus is the end of the law, which means that he brings that an ancestral office to its intended completion, that means it's not ongoing. In other words, God is not going to um, be appointing any of us priests over okay. anyone else. Now, this doesn't mean that by analogy you might not have a priestly function. I think you do in your home yeah. uh, with your kids. I think we do with our wives. And I, I think that's and scripture says that He's made us a kingdom of priests. Now, that's Revelation yeah, chapter way. one. Uh, no question about that. He's made us a kingdom of priests. Where, by the way, does it get that that terminology, that phrase. Ben, that's Isaiah. Exodus. Oh. <laughs> this is when God called the people in Exodus. He literally yep. said, you are going to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. Uh, right? And so um, so we are a kingdom of priests to the nations in that sense, in that we represent the gospel, we represent God's uh, one sacrificial lamb, who is God's fully sufficient yeah. uh, uh, sacrifice. And we also, not only do we represent that lamb, uh, we represent his finished work, which kind of leads us into the rest of this now. Um, he says, the man Christ Jesus. Now, why is that important for him to say the man Jesus Christ or the man Christ Jesus? Why doesn't he say the God Christ Jesus? Or why, why doesn't he immediately go to Jesus' divine nature? Why is he That's so good content? Question. I think, well, I think culturally, I know for us, it's easier for us to, to see Jesus as a man. Right. Just a man. In fact, usually that's where that's where right. scholars are trying to push it. Is he was not divine; he just was an enlightened human being in some kind. Sure. In that culture, the concept of divinity walking around with you, 
Well, no, I mean, but the, but the Greek gods, they would they would be embodied. You know, they would they would have a form. They would take form and share. Um, and so the concept, and he's writing to to Timothy in in Ephesus. There may well have been a. I'm way more comfortable with the concept of him being deity than I am him being. No, oh, fully like being, us. Yeah, being yeah. flesh and and. and um, so, am I on the right track there? Totally on the right track, man. In Ephesus, they would have had absolutely no qualms whatsoever with the gods visiting them in human form. That was a little bit different. Their idea of incarnation, though, was a little bit different than the way the New Testament teaches it. Jesus' human form is not apparent, and it's not illusory. It is real and pervasive. And what we mean by that is to say, Jesus was not some golden god who dropped out of heaven and who just looked like a man yeah. and functioned right. like a man um, and just was sort of in the disguise of a man. And that's often how they taught, like, this story that we covered in Acts with Zeus and Hermes. Yeah. This is what they thought. It's almost deceptive. I'm deceiving you. That Th that's I'm right. I'm deceiving you. Jesus was not deceiving. He really was a man. So he was divine. He had a fully divine nature, and he had a fully human nature. Two natures in one person. He's not two persons. He's two natures in one person, a divine and fully human. Now, I think the reason why this is important is because only a man can do what it says in the next verse, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So um, just as death came through one man, this is Romans 5, through Adam, so too life comes through one man. And so Jesus is both our representative in the atonement. He represents humanity. He died in our behalf. He died on our behalf. Yeah. Um, so he is our representative. He dies for us. He dies in place of us. And I think that's what the atonement, I think that's what Christians should believe when they think about Jesus dying for us uh, in both of those senses. But he gave himself as a ransom. Now it's interesting here, he uses the word ransom and he doesn't use the word helisterion or, or, yeah, the word that's typically associated with atonement, but yeah. he uses this analogy of ransom. So, so can we say that the ransom theory of the atonement, which has been one of the historic theories of the atonement, is biblical? Only in the sense that the ransom is paid to God and not to Satan. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. So if, it's, if people take the ransom theory that Christ had to pay something to Satan, as if Satan, we sinned against him in some way, but that's not the case. So I would only that small sliver of understanding. I think I would agree with that. I think it's a, yeah. I think it's a portion of the atonement. I think uh, right. Oh, who is it? William Lane Craig wrote a book about the atonement. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, and he and he and he talks about how and this is absolutely a facet of the jewel of the gospel. Uh, yes, is that that we were ransomed right. uh, to God by Christ's actions. Um, out of the power of sin right. and death. Uh, and that's a, that is a component of the salvation that we experience. I think so. I think that, uh, the, these are not competing ideas. These are not, these ideas are not allergic to one another. The idea of Christ. I like that word. They're not allergic to one another. Th they're not. They're not averse. It, we can hold all of these views. So right. just quickly, what the historical views have been. It's early so for me. <laughs> uh, so if I could just remember what they are. Um, the idea of Christus Victor, the idea of Christ being victorious on the cross yeah. over sin, death, and hell, I think is a thoroughly biblical idea. Yes, amen. There yeah. are all kinds of passages you could go to to show that. I think that Christ being a ransom, uh, the price that was paid for our 
sin, yeah. the debt that we owed, canceled. I and that's think that telos. Idea. That's the it is finished, the paid in full. That yes, that's right. Yeah. That's uh, uh, to telestai. Yeah. This word he uses, uh, that John uses, is this sort of uh, the note is paid in full. Now the question with ransom is who's the note being paid to? Who holds the yeah. note? Uh, and I would argue, God Himself holds the note. And this is where the analogy breaks down a little bit because this is not typically how you know a person doesn't it's not pay themselves. Yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but but in a, in a sense they do. Uh, when when a debt is forgiven, the the person is is having to, to own the, the loss of that. Yeah, money. that's true. They've, they're paying. Yeah, right. They are they are foot, foot the bill for it. Um, I don't know that the knowledge will break down if you press it too much, but um, but it's out of their pocket. But in a sense, yeah, in a sense, they are they are they are losing losing that yeah. in order to be reconciled to this person by forgiving their debt. Well, I think the other the other component of that though is ransom. You you the ransom um, is a picture of someone holding someone against their will, yeah. and then a payment being made uh, to a thief or a brigand or right. someone who right. is who has captured someone else. And this is why those early church fathers thought, okay, this obviously works. ransom is being paid to the devil. Because <laughs> yeah. he's the one. Because God's not a brigand. Yeah, yeah, no, because but actually we are bound in sin and we are bound um, I don't know how I don't know how you would say that, but but we we have been bound by God in a sense that God is the one who has judged us. God is the one who's pronounced. And I know that there's some pushback on on the ransom because it it puts into your mind, oh, these poor people are trapped and, and possessed by that. And and it's true in some sense that sin always takes us farther than we expect it to go. Right. <laughs> it keeps us there longer sure. than we ever wanted yeah, to be. That's right. But um, we've sold ourselves into slavery. Like we. Right. It, 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 this is you know, and so I know that there's some. There's some in the in the camp of, of substitutionary atonement who are like, well, no, that just makes a victim out of sinners. Yes. When mm -hmm. it's like, well, well, yes, you you are a victim of sin of your sin, but you are also the perpetrator also who has perpetrator. you know who has bound yourself to yeah. this evil captor. Yeah, that's right. And uh, you're you're a willing a willing victim, a willing yeah. participant <laughs> here, a perpetrator of your own. Uh, yeah. So the other views would be substitutionary atonement. Uh, which I think is fully, fully biblical. I, I can't imagine how anybody would argue against that, although I've, I've heard arguments against it, but I think they're just nonsense. And then penal substitutionary, the idea that actually it's not just Christ as our vicarious substitution, it's Christ, what, what did he do in that substitution? Well, it, it is he paid the penalty for our sin by bearing our sins, by taking upon himself the sin. Uh, that brings us peace with God. Yeah. This is Isaiah 53. So I think there with penal substitution, it really depends on your view of Isaiah 53. If you think that that's a direct trajectory prophecy about Jesus dying on the cross, which I do. I can't yeah. imagine how anyone doesn't. But um, but if, if you don't think that, then I, then I suppose that all this sort of vicarious suffering punishment language in <laughs> Isaiah 53 would not be particularly appealing to a person, so here, but here we clearly have the the ransom theory being taught, at least by way of analogy. Um, he says, "Which is the testimony given at the proper time?" Uh, for this is, uh, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I am telling the truth; I am not lying. Uh, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So here again, as I mentioned this last weekend, Paul uses the word preaching and teaching in the same breath to refer to himself. 
Amen. If you recall from chapter 1, he also referred to himself as a deacon, mm -hmm. a minister of the gospel. And so I think what we typically think of these, these offices, four or five offices, however you see that, um, there's really some overlap here in the first century between preachers, teachers, deacons. In a sense, every form of ministry is a, de sure. a deacon type of ministry. So is this the beginning of it and it's working itself out to become distinct offices? Or... Or, or we even to this day we recognize no, there's overlap in these, and we don't need them. I think there has to be overlap. I, yeah, I, so I don't know how you can preach right. without being an evangelist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's true. Yeah. Any proclamation of the gospel, even if you're a pastor, would be evangelism. You are engaging in evangelism. You are proclaiming the good news, and the Holy Spirit uh, can manifest and reveal Himself to someone in your audience and and save them. So you know, uh, even if as a pastor, like I don't consider myself an evangelist, I really don't. I would consider myself more like Timothy, where Paul has to say, um, do the work of an evangelist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you're a pastor, you have to do the work of an evangelist. Yeah. Now my mom doesn't have to do the work of an evangelist, she is an evangelist. Every elevator ride. Every elevator ride turns into evangelism with her. So well, I, think, um, I think there's something, at least in my mind, there's something helpful about some of those distinctions being made. Um, the, you know, God, God is yeah. a God that brings order from chaos, right? Right, order from from nothingness. And so, at the birth of the church, at the at the genesis of the church, you have this really wonderful right. creation moment. And the fact that it plays out in becoming more and more ordered that does that's not troublesome to me. So I don't look back and go, oh, why can't we just be the church in in Acts two? I think there's really great things about being the church in Acts two. But I don't well, have a problem. That was a bag too, though. Yeah, and 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 you you also think the Greek speaking widows got left. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I actually don't have a problem with there being a, uh, okay as this grows, it becomes ordered and it becomes you know now it can become institutionalized and and right. lose the the vibrancy of of uh, what the spirit would do. Yeah. But I don't I don't I don't struggle as much as some do with this idea of they're of they're being instituted. Okay, yeah. Now we're instituting deacons. Now we're instituting elders. Now we're instituting right. order and and hey, control your gatherings. You know, I know you guys are having a great time, but all of this should be done and you know with some sense of you know liturgy of, of some mm -hmm. kind. And, um, I personally think, and I'm glad you brought this up because I was not planning on talking about this, but I do want to. I do want to. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I personally think that the books, the pastoral epistles, should be the size of the entire New Testament. Like, I, that's what I want. I want them to spell out everything. Yes. You know <laughs> Just what I mean? tell me what I should tell do. Tell me what to do. <laughs> Make it black and white. But I think there's a really, but this is exactly, now by analogy, this is exactly why Jesus was getting on the case of the Pharisees here. Because this is what they did to Torah. What they did to the Old Testament is they took the Old Testament and where it was unspecified, like divorce laws, they filled in all the blanks for their culture. And this became for them later, it became called the Oral Torah or what they refer to as the halakha. And uh, so, but Jesus seems to really be clashing with them over this. Jesus, what they have done is suffocated the Torah. They have they have suffocated the spirit of it and uh, in, 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 in have preferred um, sort of atomizing it down to its finest application principles. And so I feel like the pastorals, I personally want them to, 
answer a lot more questions. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know how the church is supposed to be structured exactly. I want case studies for each. <laughs> how do I, I want a budget. So give me a membership polity. <laughs> give me give me uh, a deacon uh, po- a yeah. deacon uh, liturgy that yeah. I can present a deacon to the church. But there's so much that is left unspecified because I think they expect us to work it out because those things, quite frankly, um, like I don't have any problem with Presbyterian church government. We don't practice that here. I mean, yeah. We don't run Presbyterians. We don't practice Presbyterian church government. I have no problem with it. I don't think it's unbiblical. That's an issue of Christian conscience and, and wisdom. Right? So, conscience and wisdom, and yeah, application. So did the Holocaust remove the necessity for God to be involved in their thinking, praying, developing? Whereas for us, because it's so narrow, we're reliant upon the Lord. I think so. I think what it did is it it it, it crushed the heart. <laughs> like what it did is soul crushing. <laughs> no, it just didn't leave any room for the heartfelt application that Moses himself okay. had commanded. Yeah. Okay, uh, yeah. and it didn't leave any any space for this is how I work it out in this situation. They answered all those questions for you, and this is why that this debate is raging in the New Testament over divorce, because they're trying to solve something that Moses has left unspecified. Then they bring it to Jesus and Matthew and say, what 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 is what does Moses mean when he says uh, give a woman a certificate of divorce for unfaithfulness. Mm-hmm. What is the word unfaithfulness mean? Yeah. Is it sexual unfaithfulness, adultery, or is it burning your toes? Yeah. Is it anything? <laughs> well, Moses left that unspecified, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And Jesus has to side with the adultery side, the more conservative wing of the Pharisees, not the liberal wing. Um, but there are many issues like that in Torah that, that Jesus was just upset with them over okay. trying to fill in all the blanks. Yeah. And it's, there's nothing wrong with application. There's nothing, but you can't but take my case sermon case. and say, now my sermon yeah. is equal to scripture. Right. All and, the application yeah, I gave and you he, on And he Sunday. pointed out that, hey, your your application actually is now violating the law. Like when you, right. when you say right. any 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 uh, money that I would have to care for my elderly parents, oh, I'm sorry, that's a gift to God. Yeah, Corban. Right? You're literally violating the fifth, or the fifth commandment. Yeah. yeah. You're and not breaking, honoring your father and mother. That's exactly right. It's um, like your, your new law to ensure that you will obey the commandment has caused you to break the commandment. Think about right now when, when we quote the Shema, um, we, we use the word Yahweh. I yeah. mean, the word Yahweh is in the Hebrew. Uh, okay, but when modern Jews quote it, they do not use the word Yahweh. They use the word uh, Adonai. Um, and it's because, according to their laws, according to their oral laws, you're not supposed to take the name of the Lord in vain. Well, that's in the Decalogue. I mean, that's in the Ten yeah. Commandments. But that doesn't mean don't speak the name of the Lord at all. But in order to but in order to to keep from disobeying that law, they just avoid it altogether. Yeah, and that that is equally not. So the application mm. of it causes them to break it in the sense that now um, they're not following the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is not to avoid right. it altogether, so yeah. that you will you will not sin against yeah. taking it in a vain way. But um, how did we get to this from verse seven? We were talking about we were talking about the <laughs> institution of structures. There we go. And yeah, the herald, but an yeah, apostle. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. Now this, I have a question on this verse seven. It's a little bit of a subset, but why does he have to time? tell? We're, we're about forty minutes in, so we should oh, probably we better wrap it up. This one up. Okay. Well, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I know. Why does he have to tell Timothy this? <laughs> okay, like that? I'm gonna explain that. Yeah. I'm gonna explain that. Yeah, I bet you. <laughs> In our next episode. All right, in our next episode. Thanks for joining us. We uh, we hope that that not only are you hearers of the word, but doers of it. So uh, we're grateful that we have one God who uh, expresses Himself to us through the Scriptures and, and through His Spirit. And yeah, we will see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.